We are almost done with our second series in Genesis. Uh, it's been 13 messages so far in uh, the fall. And we're coming right up towards the end where we see on full display what has happened to this world. Not just the introduction of sin, but the spread of sin and the pervasiveness of sin over this earth. Where we can confidently say that the problems in this world are not God's fault. In fact, he has given us salvation from the problems of this world. But that mankind has not only caused his own problems, but spreads his problems to all corners of the earth. So this morning we look at the curse of Cain, the first human to be cursed. You remember Adam and Eve were not cursed. They lived in a cursed creation because of their sin. And we're going to ascertain from the text this morning, why was it that Cain was cursed when Adam and Eve were not? What was different about his sin or better, what was different about his response to his sin. So our main point up front, God's grace and justice are both undiminished. These seem contradictory or at least paradoxical, but for God, these are one and the same. His grace and his justice are both undiminished and rejection of God's grace is a short and slippery slope. And unfortunately, Cain finds himself on this slope. So we begin with a lie, the very first human lie in scripture. In fact, the very first human lie in all of God's word. You'll remember Adam and Eve didn't lie. When they were asked a question, they answered poorly, but they told the truth. Cain takes a different tactic. So in Cain's conversation with God, he reacts quite differently than Adam and Eve had reacted. So we want to go a few verses back to see the beginning of this conversation because it doesn't start in verse 9. It starts back in verse 6 where God asks Cain this simple question. Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? God knows perfectly well why Cain is angry. God has already ascertained that Cain is angry. He wants Cain to reflect on why he is angry. What about Cain's rejection or the rejection of Cain's sacrifice has made Cain angry? If he does good, will his countenance not be lifted up? If he does or acts righteously, will not God accept his sacrifice? God is offering Cain grace. And what is Cain's response towards God? It's silence. Cain does not say a single word to God. In fact, he brushes him off. He ignores him. When God asks Adam a question to try to get Adam reflecting on what he has done, Adam's response, flawed as it might be, shows an understanding of God's righteousness, shows an understanding that God is God and Adam is creation. Adam is man. Adam is beholden to God. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because God's righteousness is so perfect. And Adam understood that he was not righteous before God. Cain did not understand this, or if he did, he did not care. In fact, his response was silence towards God and violence towards his brother. Verse 8 says, Cain told Abel his brother. So when God asks him a question, who does he speak with? Not God. He takes Cain out into a field and rises up against him and kills him. This is Cain's response to God's offer of grace. This is God, or this is Cain thumbing his nose at God. This is Cain saying, if you want a blood sacrifice, I will give you a blood sacrifice. And even more sinister 
is that this appears to be premeditated. This wasn't an argument that they happened to get in while in the field. But the text leads us to understand that Cain led him into the field so that his screams might not be heard. Remember, Moses is writing the book of Genesis, and he's writing it for the purpose of teaching Israel. And nested within the law of Moses that he passed down to the Israelites is this very interesting passage about guilt in the case where it might be questioned. This comes after the uh, shared guilt of two who commit fornication in the city, where a woman does not scream out or cry for help. It's not considered rape because she did not appear, at least, to be consensual. But here, God says the blame will lie solely on the man when he has taken the woman out into the field. It says, but if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. The law understands the deceitful character of sinners. The law reflects God's righteousness and God's understanding and God's justice. He says, but you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. This uses incredibly paralleled phrases to speak of the nature of rape and the nature of Cain's murder of Abel. Where Cain found the best location to commit his sin in secret. Where Abel would not be able to seek help. So God asks Abel, God asks Cain rather, where is Abel, your brother? Does God not know where Abel is? It should be obvious to us that he does. Later in the text, he even reveals to us that he knows exactly where he is. And it's doubtful whether Cain truly knows where Abel is now that he is dead. God knows. But Abel does know the question that God is asking. What happened to your brother? What did you do? Cain's answer is, I do not know. Cain knows, right? This is like a petulant child. When a parent asks, what did you do? And the kid goes, I don't know. Oh, that kid knows. He knows. This is the first lie committed by a human. And it won't be the last. But what do we know about this liar? Whose seed is he? In John 8, 43, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Cain, though born from Adam, is of the seed of the serpent, just as Abel and Seth would be of the seed of the woman. They are juxtaposed against each other, that a seed reproduces a like seed. Well, Adam has two natures. He has his regenerated nature, but he still has the sin nature. Which one is going to dominate? Each child born is born spiritually dead. Both Abel and Cain were born spiritually dead. But one looked to someone else 
for his salvation. He looked to the blood sacrifice that God promised would bring in salvation. He did not fully understand what that blood sacrifice would lead to, that it would lead to the righteous payment of blood by Jesus Christ. But he trusted in God's promise that God would save. And Abel had to put his faith in the right object. Cain instead looks to himself and believes that the work of his own hands is what will save him. And it leads to the work of his own hands shedding blood as a murderer. Notice as well that in unbelief, Cain's mind itself is darkened. Cain is unable to understand God's questions as Adam had understood. Not because he's dumb or dim, but because he is not in a spirit of belief. He is not ready to accept God's words. He is in unbelief. In 1 Corinthians 4, we read that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Satan has successfully blinded the mind of the unbelieving Cain. He has convinced him that by the works of his own hands he can save himself, and that God is someone to whom he can speak flippantly. God is someone to whom he can approach without a sin covering, and one to whom he can lie to, and moreover, one to whom he can turn the questions back on him. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, in the Hebrew, this has a particle that implies a negative response. So it's as if Cain is saying, I am not my brother's keeper. Am I? He says, that's not my job, God, that's yours. Watching out for Cain. Perhaps he's asking God, where were you? What did you do to save Cain? What did you do for him? This is incredibly different from Adam's response. So again, we don't want to make excuses for Adam's sin, but we want to recognize the difference. We want to recognize why it is that we had the offer of salvation given to Adam and given to Eve, this promise that they will be saved by the seed that came through the woman because they had already achieved faith. Their faith was present. And it was present even before the cursing on the earth and on the serpent was dealt out. And that is why God had the response that he had. You see, when God asked him, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He answers poorly. He tries to blame the woman. But what does it all boil down to? Yep, I ate. Yes, I disobeyed. Yes, I confess. I agree with you that I acted sinfully. And to the woman, what is this that you have done? She points the finger at the serpent, but in the end, she sees no alternative but to speak the truth to God because he knows. He knows all things, and she has to turn to him for grace. God is offering grace to, Abel, to Adam. He's offering grace to Eve, and he's offering grace to Cain. But Cain does not accept it. In fact, God offers grace to Cain on multiple occasions in these short few passages. And each time, he chooses to walk further and further and further away from God's grace. Now, God was not unaware of where Abel was. In fact, God knew more intimately where Abel was than Cain could possibly hope to know. It is God who promises to bring back those who have fallen asleep in him 
and he promises vengeance for those whose lives have been taken from them unjustly, especially on the basis of his word. Cain created the first martyr. Remember what 1 John 3:12 says? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil. Cain was the first religious persecutor. And Abel was the first martyr. And the blood of the martyrs stains the ground. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This week in our Bible reading, we were reading the first 10 chapters of Exodus. And what was it that turned the Lord's attention towards Egypt? The cry of his people under persecution. And the promise that he had given them that he would bring them out of that persecution. Well, here is where the very first cry of persecution comes from. And just as faithful as God is to Israel to bring them out of persecution under Egypt, so God will bring those whose lives have been taken from them into new life. In Hebrews 11.4, we read that by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, a testimony to his faith, that God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. God is the God of the living. In the book of Matthew, some Sadducees come up to the Lord and question him about uh, what will happen in the life to come. Now, they're tricking Jesus. They don't believe in a life to come. They don't believe in the resurrection. And where does Jesus turn to prove the resurrection? Well, he doesn't turn to Daniel, where I would probably go, Daniel chapter 12. He goes back to the promise made to Abraham in the Pentateuch. And he says that God promised to Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And God is the God of the living. God will render to Abraham, living Abraham, the land, the seed, and the blessing. So if Abraham never received that in his life, what is the only possible solution? Jesus begs the question that Abraham's life is not over. God is the God of the living, and God is the God of Abel, though he is dead, because Abel will again live, because Christ lives. The cry of God's persecuted and martyred saints is precious to him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. There is not one who is unnoticed. There is not one who is unheard. And there is not one that will be unavenged. And again, we better be thankful that God has not brought in the full payment for this sin Because what that looks like is so complete and so final that this entire earth will pass away under its birth pains. In Revelation 16, the very last round of judgments that God will unleash on this earth before the return of Christ, we read, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. These are the last judgments on the kingdom of the Antichrist. And just as God says to the Pharisees that they are guilty 
of the blood of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah. So he says to those in the tribulation period that they are guilty of the blood of every martyr from Abel on to the last tribulation saint martyred in the tribulation period. He has given them blood to drink and they deserve it. In Isaiah 26, God promises the restoration of Israel. He promises that although they are unable to bring in their own salvation, God will bring it in. They say, we give birth to the wind. What does God give birth to? New life. All of Israel's attempts to save themselves are futile, just as all of our attempts to save ourselves are futile. But God, for God's glory, will bring in full restoration for Israel, and he brings in full restoration for the individual believer as well. We can often look to Israel as an analogy of how God works in the life of the individual believer. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, we read that your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Not by the earth's power, not by Israel's power, not by the church's power, but by the power of God. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. The coming of God's wrath on the world for the shed blood of his saints will be terrible. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. For now, the earth covers the slain. The blood of Cain cries out from the ground. But he has the promise of full restoration. Because his faith was in the perfect sacrifice. His faith was in the promise of God. So that although he is dead... He is alive, and God is the God of the living. But for Cain, all becomes futile. Now, God's not done extending grace. But Cain will receive a curse. God has finished ascertaining Cain's character. God was not asking for simple information, but he was testing the character of Cain. How will Cain respond to this offer of grace? How will Cain respond to this opportunity to agree with me about his sin? Cain demonstrated full well his response. You'll remember in Genesis 3.14, God asked no questions of the serpent. God asked Adam, and then he asked Eve, and then he pronounces judgment. Why was the serpent not questioned? There was no need to question the serpent. His character was revealed. His character was settled. There was no more opportunity for redemption. In fact, there never was opportunity for redemption for the serpent because he is not born from Adam. He has no kinsman redeemer. What God is doing in teaching Adam and Eve and Cain is offering grace, offering redemption because of the blood of Jesus Christ that can cover their sins. So he's testing their character. Once their character is tested, what does he do? He curses the serpent. And in cursing the serpent, he promises them a savior. For Cain, God has no more questions. Questions have finished, and Cain has failed. Cain has chosen self-righteousness over God-righteousness. 
He has chosen his own lie, his own false reality. And God begins to curse. He says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, and you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. The ground was already cursed under Adam's curse. This curse must then be more terrible, a reduplication of the same curse. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and he brought to the Lord an offering from the ground. Obviously, it was still possible for him to cultivate. In fact, it says that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. It was still productive. God still created the ground, but the work would be difficult because Cain would have to fight, and Abel would have to fight with the thorns and the thistles. What Cain has here is barren ground. No more green thumb for Cain. The Lord has dried up his fields. Henry Morris writes this. He says, the earth would no longer yield its increase for him. Those who attempt to earn salvation by their good works find ultimately that of themselves they can produce only thorns and thistles. The true good works are those which only God can work in us through faith. It's not simply ironic that the work of Cain's hands that he tried to bring to God, his own self-righteousness was then stripped from him. Not even the covering of self-deception for Cain. In Ephesians 2.8, a message to the church from Paul about our good works not being of our hands. We read, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Cain did not understand the gift. Or Cain did not receive the gift. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared good works for his servants to walk in, not to produce from their own hands. We yield to the Spirit, and the Spirit works through us. It's not the branches of the tree that produce the fruit, but the sap through it. It's the Holy Spirit that produces good works in the believer. And so Cain finishes our threefold cursing. God created and blessed three times. And in the fall of man, God curses three times. So that the ground, the created animals and the one who is supposed to rule over them have been completely cursed. This dispensation hasn't lasted very long yet, a couple of years maybe. We very quickly went from the human test under conscience to avoid all known evil and to do all known good. We move very quickly into human failure the wickedness of Cain, and it will only increase. The next seven messages, in fact, we see only the increase of evil on the earth. We see hope. God always gives hope. But the rest of this dispensation gets more and more and more evil until God has to judge with a judgment that will only be outdone by the final judgment of this earth. It will only be outdone by the entire destruction of this earth. Cain's curse came in four parts. His farming ability was lost. No ability even to work for a meager living, to survive by the sweat of his brow. He becomes a wanderer dependent on others to survive. His fellowship with God is lost. We might say, weren't they already kicked out of the garden? 
God offered them an opportunity to approach him at the gate of the garden. Cain is removed even from that. Just as in Israel, God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, and Israel was able to approach God at the tent of meeting. But to be banished from the camp, to be separated from the people, meant to be cast away from the presence of God because God's tabernacle with man could not become corrupted. He became a fugitive and a wanderer. We have the first nomadic people group. We'll see that he goes on to live in the land of Nod. This is the same word for wanderer, just a different vowel. He goes to live in the land of wandering, east of the garden. You'll remember, Genesis has three people groups that can learn from it. Actually, the book itself has two, but the events, three people learn from these events. The original characters, Cain is learning as he goes. He's learning from the hand of the Lord, from the mouth of the Lord. Israel is learning through the prophet Moses what is being revealed to him about the events of the prehistoric world. And the church learns secondhand from this letter that was given directly to Israel. Israel is the primary audience of Genesis. And they are receiving this in preparation for entering the promised land so that they know how to act in a land of God's giving. In Leviticus 13, we see the law of the leper. What happens when there is uncleanliness in the camp? As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. God treats sin the same as he treats an outbreak of infection that threatens to spread in the camp. Sin is the most infectious pandemic this world has ever seen or will ever see. Sin. It's as leprosy. In Leviticus 18, which we looked at, last week, when we saw the sins of the nations that Israel was going to dispossess. And what does God warn them? He says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. What, was, what were some of these sins that they were engaged in? Do you remember? It's a pretty graphic list. Some of the worst of them being murder and child sacrifice. Israel is being warned not to engage in such murderous activities because they will spoil the ground and the ground itself will spew them out just as Cain shed the blood of Abel and the ground itself spewed him out. Moses is writing this not for our curiosity, not to give us scientific details of history, though wherever Genesis speaks of scientific topics, it is absolutely correct because it comes from the mind of God. Its purpose is not scientific. Its purpose is didactic. Its purpose is to teach Israel about the holiness of God and about what is expected of a people of God living in his presence. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses prophesies that Israel will indeed be spewed out from the land. There is no question about that in these prophecies. It is guaranteed. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in the book. And the Lord uprooted from the 
them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land, as it is this day. But God also promises a restoration for Israel. God promises, just as certainly as they will be cast out, they will be brought back in. By whose power? By God's. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and the cursings which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. When has Israel been in all the nations of this world? God brought them out of Egypt. They were in a single nation. God brought them back from Babylon. They were in a single nation. God has never brought his people back to the land of Israel from all the corners of the earth. But he will. He's already begun. The nation of Israel exists today for the first time in 2,000 years. This is the foreshocks of God bringing his people back to the land. But he says that when they call to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished them, they will return to the Lord their God and obey him with all their hearts and soul according to all that is commanded to them that day, to them and their sons. It says, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth. From there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. They will be cast out of the land away from God's presence just as Cain was cast out but different from Cain, they have the promise of restoration. They will be brought back in. So when they look at Cain, they see the futility of his actions. They see the permanence of what his rejection of God's grace has done. And it becomes the prerogative of the individual to put his faith in God. But it becomes the prerogative of the nation to follow God. With the promise that they will be restored. And for the individual, the possibility of becoming like Cain cast out from the camp. Cain's response is fear. Cain becomes afraid. And it's ironic what he's scared of. He's scared of getting murdered. This guy, I tell you. He has the audacity to complain. And what is his complaint? My punishment is too great to bear. God, you've overdone it. You misjudged. This is too much, don't you see? What was Adam and Eve's response? They said nothing about their punishment. They received it silently. And they put their hope in God's promise of restoration of grace. What's Cain's? Self-centeredness, self-concern, cognitive dissonance. He says, behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. This is what he says is too much. This is what he says, God, I don't think I deserve all that. Don't you think you've been a little hasty, God? This is the one that gets me. Whoever finds me will kill me. Oh, no. Uh-oh. We might ask, why, why doesn't God punish Cain by putting him to death? Isn't that part of the righteousness of God? Vengeance on the murderer? Well, that does reflect his holy character. But remember, God's justice is undiminished by his grace, and his grace is undiminished by his justice. They work perfectly, hand in hand. And where God told Adam and Eve explicitly what their punishment would be for disobedience, 
God had not told Cain specifically what his punishment would be for disobedience. God is just. But Cain lives in a unique period of time at the beginning of progressive revelation before these things were revealed. They are revealed, now we are responsible for them. We have to contextualize Cain. What happened to Cain does not happen again. God expresses his heart, his righteousness, so that we come to understand perfectly that God will pay the murderer with death. God teaches through law. God teaches through commandment. It is pedagogical for the purpose of learning. Paul agrees with this when he speaks of the purpose for the law, the law of Moses. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Law does not have to be a formal document. Law is anything from the commandment of God. He chooses at times to give specific law codes that are followed by specific people groups, but they all point back to his righteousness. They all point back to the law of God. And so God makes clear the just penalty for sin. The law came in so that the transgressions would increase. This does not say that the law came in so that the instances of sin would increase, but so that sin would be tagged as contrary to God's word, and that makes it punishable. Sin is self-destructive. Transgression is punish punishable. Adam and Eve transgressed. They disobeyed God's word. Cain sinned. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Reading the Old Testament is pretty difficult because it's an exercise of reading just how bad people can get. Just how bad sin will reign and as we see that, we don't look for more sin, we don't seek more sin, but we recognize something about God's character, that grace abounds all the more. God will give man, under the guise of human government, the ability to curb sin through capital punishment, but he has not yet given that to man. However, that does not mean that capital punishment does not begin until Genesis 9-6. Because from the time God states to Cain that whoever kills him, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold, God takes into his own hand the prerogative to deal out this punishment. That although we look at Cain's complaint and say that's ironic, God looks at it and says, yes, murder is heinous. And Cain should have known that. Cain had every ability to know that. But God will not even let the, the murder of Cain go unpunished. Because Cain did not commit a transgression that had a set punishment. Rather, Cain's sin being confirmed in himself makes himself destruct. In Psalm 79, we read, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Speaking of Israel, why should the nations look at Israel and say, where is their God? What has he done? 
What has he done to save them? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power and preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. This sevenfold judgment speaks of perfect judgment, judgment which finishes God's wrath. In Leviticus 26, God speaks of four rounds of sevenfold judgment that would come upon Israel, each time resulting in near complete destruction. God would bring them to their knees. Zechariah speaks of it as bringing them through the fire, through the furnace of purification. Round after round after round after round of purifying a people for his name. The unbelievers, the rejecters of God's grace cast out. But those who choose to put their faith in God brought into the fold of God's family. Those who through faith become children of God are saved. And those not are not guiltless. Their penalty is just. We tend to look at it backwards, that we deserve our salvation and they deserve to be saved despite not being saved. We've got it backwards. We deserve to be with them. We deserve the same wrath of God that we see poured out on the whole world. The only difference is our response. How do we respond to God's grace? Do we let it change us? Do we agree with him about his righteousness and say, yes, Lord, you are righteous and I am not. And yes, Lord, only the works of your hands can save me because my works are futile. My works are useless. My works can't save me. One more note here that causes some an element of disbelief when they get to chapter 4 in Genesis. It says here, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. People say, well, the Bible's inaccurate because there's only four people alive. Actually, three. Well, that's not consistent if they would read just a couple verses later. We see that at the age of 130, Adam has Seth, and that there were other sons and daughters. This and at the bottom, and he had other sons and daughters, is not a sequential and, meaning that it was after Seth that he had other sons and daughters, but it is an absolute statement qualifying the life of Adam, that during his life he had other sons and daughters besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. That in Adam's first 130 years, not only were Cain and Abel born to him, but other sons and daughters. So who does Cain fear? But his own brothers and sisters. But better said, who does Cain fear? But Abel's brothers and sisters. He fears the kinsman avenger. God makes provision for that in Israel. In Numbers 35, he tells them to set aside six cities of refuge. Then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. A trial requires a law code to measure one up against. There was no law code in existence to measure Cain up against. His sin would destroy himself from within, and unfortunately it would destroy the world in the process. Why did God judge the world by complete destruction with the flood? 
but he doesn't do that today. Because we have a law code, the law of Christ for us. Our world did not spiral so quickly into destruction as the world of Cain because God had put in limits to how far man's evil could be spread throughout the world before it was taken care of. He put in the limit of capital punishment, human government, so that a government could take care of the evil from within it. And he put in national borders so that governments couldn't oppress their own citizens and corrupt the whole world. But he gave to Israel a special law code, a law code that was able to keep unrighteousness of all sorts out from within its camp. And for them, he gave cities of refuge as well. That the one who has not yet had an opportunity to stand trial is innocent until proven guilty. The presumption of innocence. Where the brother or sister of the one killed or the mother or the father might seek to take vengeance into their own hands, God says, no, but vengeance is mine. They are to be protected in the cities of refuge until they can be measured up against the law. Genesis 4.15 at the end, it says the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Now there is every theory under the sun of what this might be. The text does not tell us, and so people's imaginations run wild. One of my favorites I found was from a third century rabbi who thought that this might be a horn with which he could fight off whoever tried to kill him. I like that one. A Reformation scholar proposed that it was probably a dog to fend off those who would wish him harm. That was an interesting one. On a uh, more disturbing note, some cults, like the Mormon cult, teach that the curse of Cain was that his skin would become black and that anyone born of him would also be black. And these were the cursed ones of God. They changed this, not because their theology changed, but because no black people wanted to join the Mormon church. The text does not tell us what this sign is, but recognize what else this does not tell us. It does not tell us that this is a curse of Cain. The curse of Cain has already been dealt out. God is dealing mercy to Cain. God is putting a sign on Cain to spare his life. Cain is an aberration of nature, one who committed murder before the law, one whose sin was self-destructing him from within and would take care of him eventually, but one who could not be judged up against a law code. God sets signs for protection. In Exodus 12, which we'll be reading this week in our Bible reading, God gives Israel the commandment to put a sign on their doorposts to avoid judgment. This is not the same sign that he gave to Cain. For Israel, this indicates their faith in God's promise. They put the sign there themselves because they believed in God. And they believed in the blood of the lamb to save them. That by simply spreading the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, that as God said, that sacrifice would work to spare them. God says he will not allow the destroyer to come into their houses and smite them. Well, God will not allow a destroyer to come and physically destroy Cain either. And these are physical protections. Their faith is what saved them spiritually. Their faithful action, their response because of that faith within them is what spared them physically. 
had a believing Israelite not spread the blood on his windowpane, he would have lost his life, but he would not have lost his eternal life. He would have been punished in this life for disobedience. But even in the Old Testament, the commandment for salvation is faith alone. And it is faith that produced the works which saved them. They trusted in God and they brought the proper blood sacrifice. In Romans 7, we see in verse 8 here, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law, sin is dead. I apologize, I have these verses in the wrong place, but it's uh, good to go back and read them again, I guess. It says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which, has, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So then the law is holy. He is speaking here of the law of Moses. The law of Moses is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me, may it never be. The law of good is, the law of Moses is good and righteous from the hand of God. And although because of it, sin was imputed penalty, it was good. That death was dealt out in punishment for sin. The law itself was good. It exacerbated sin, even. We read here, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me, may it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. God's commandment makes sin utterly sinful. The transgression against God's word makes what is naturally bad against the law of God punishable. All right, sorry, that was uh, out of order. God has a few seals. The seal of Cain, I think people shy away from saying that it is a positive seal of protection because they inaccurately say that a seal of God must indicate salvation. Well, we remember from Ezekiel 28 that Satan himself had a seal of protection or of uh, perfection before his fall. We have the seal of the Spirit as the church saints. This is a promise of our salvation. But why is it given to us in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and not Daniel or not Isaiah or the kings? Because this was not yet a promise until the dispensation of grace. That until the church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not guaranteed as a seal on the believer for their eternal life. Now, regeneration would still happen, but the seal was not there. The seal which taught them spiritual things ascertained only through the Spirit. The Spirit would come upon the Old Testament believer, but would not indwell them as it does the church. This is a unique seal. Because of that seal, people conflate all seals as salvatory or salvific. This is another one that's often confused as a seal of salvation. This one by a different cult. A cult that says that only 144,000 people will be saved because those are the sealed of God. They miss completely the context of Revelation and completely the context of their sealing. The seal of the living God was for the protection of the 144,000 who were already saved. 
The 144,000 were not saved at the time of their sealing, but sealed because they were saved. And sealed, not because they were the only believers, but because they specifically were tasked with a mission during the tribulation period. To be evangelists, the catalyst for the greatest revival this world will ever see. In the last days, these 144,000 are sealed with a seal of protection because God had a purpose for them and they would fulfill that purpose for God. And then we do see other protective seals and most of these do have to do with saved groups of people. But Cain's seal, although it does protect him physically, does not save him spiritually. Notice that with all of these seals, save for the seal of the church alone by the Holy Spirit, not one of these seals the soul, but all of these speak of physical protection. The church seal, the Holy Spirit within us, is the only one that guarantees us salvation. Others have guarantees of salvation, but not the Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling them. And God's commandment came to be. God's curse had its effect. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, just as the Lord said. God was merciful, but did he recapitulate on his curse? Did he say, oh, whoops, I guess you're right. I was a little hasty. I overdid it. Nope. God says, I will extend to you mercy for your physical life because of my justice. Because it is not just to measure you up against a law that has not yet been pronounced for you. His sin will take care of him. His sin will be found out in his body and it will cause death. We remember a couple weeks ago, we read the product of sin, that when it gives birth, eventually it gives birth to death. Just because God doesn't strike Cain dead doesn't mean he was contrary to his own character. Cain gets what's coming to him, spiritually and physically, but God offered him grace at every point and he even offers grace to the degenerate sinner, the unregenerated. We look around the world and we say, why does God let good things happen to bad people? Why do he let good things happen to Cain? Because God is gracious and God is merciful, but God is also just. God is just and all his judgments are righteous. When we look at his judgment on Cain, we see that Cain was a despicable human. We know many despicable humans. Hopefully, not personally, but I'm sure we could come up with a pretty long list if we tried. Why didn't they die as children? God knew they would grow up to be evil. Why weren't they taken care of in the beginning of their reign like Hitler? God is just and will bring about the just penalty for their sins. But God is merciful and God is gracious because Cain still had the opportunity to come to God. At any point in Cain's life, but sadly, the silence of Cain speaks loudly. When we see Cain's name referred to again later in scripture, it is an archetype of the unregenerate sinner, of the sinner who never accepted God's grace. So although scripture does not tell us if God's mercy led to later salvation, we know that despite his terrible sins, God has mercy on him. A lot of people never come to God 
because they think their sins are too big to be forgiven, too great for God to handle. He's put a curse on them. They're finished. They're done. Well, until the day you die, you have the opportunity to approach God with the proper sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and say, because of what he has done, I have the promise of life in you. Because of what God has done and what God has done alone, even Cain, after his murder, was able to come to God, but sadly, he does not. God's justice is demonstrated even in his mercy. God did not overdo his punishment with Cain. In fact, God, despite dealing a perfect punishment, still revised the future of Cain so that his mercy would be apparent. That God said he's not going to spare Cain's life, but he will spare it from another person's sin acting on him. Cain's sin is enough for him to bear. Cain's sin is enough for him to deal with. And although he deserves to die for his sins, as do all of we, all of us, God offers Cain grace and mercy so that his actions are a mirror of his perfect character. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are always impressed with the perfection of your word, that the judgments we would make are not the judgments you would make, but that we can learn from your perfect justice, your perfect mercy, and your perfect grace, how we might live to reflect you, so that we might reflect your character, even as scripture, your word, your incarnate word, reflects you. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.